SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 68 with guest Joe Yong. Our guest today is Joe Yong. Joe is currently a program manager in the SQL Server team, working on a stretch database. He was part of the original core incubation team of three people who started the project almost two years ago. He spends most of his time making sure the engine and the server solves the right customer problems and in the right way. He also tries to ensure they can be deployed and managed by customers without help from Yoda, gallons of jolt cola or keyboard smashing and he notes unless it's one of those noisy clickety ones. So, so welcome, Joe. Thanks, Greg. Uh, it's great to be on your show. Awesome. And so, look, what I get you to do, I, I must. When I first came across you, I think you were at uh, Scalability at the time. Um, but uh, just a little bit of background as to how you come to be here where you are today. Oh well, how far back do you want to go? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so. Well, I actually started, I've been working on databases all my life, and I actually started out professionally on DB2, 400, and DS370 and 390, if you can believe that, and very quickly decided I hated that and spent a lot of time on Oracle before I got called into a Microsoft office and they asked me what I thought of VB and SQL Server, I told them they were toys, mm-hmm. and we spent not about a half hour arguing about why they shouldn't normalize everything. Yeah. Eventually, they hired me just, I think, so they can torture me some more. Uh, that was almost 20 years ago. I've been working with SQL Server in some capacity or other ever since, both as an engineer in the field and Redman, and uh, in between Microsoft, I took a stint out for about six years to do consulting again, to get back in the trenches. And I've been back in Microsoft the second time around for five years now. Great. All good. And so StretchDB is the current passion. So um, fortunately, uh, I was going to say some teams are responsive, some are not. And uh, all the things I've been sending you about StretchDB, I've had lots of responses. So it, it's obviously something currently very passionate and, and very responsive on. Yeah, it's one of those things where... Senior management got together and decided, you know, let's go do this cool thing that customers have been beating us up on about managing large volumes of data and not having to deal with all of the pains that comes with large volumes of data. And they throw out interesting words like data continuum and things that go on bottomless storage and all that stuff. So we turned that into a product and out of those high-level words. So, yeah, we feel really strongly about this because it is a first in the industry. It is, and look, I suppose the the earlier uh, options around this, my, one of the things I quite liked in SQL Server 2012, uh, I think it was about Service Pack 2, was uh, the ability to have sort of data files uh, pushed across into uh, Azure storage accounts. It actually may have even been SQL 2014. Uh, and the, the thing I liked with that is I could take a, a long table or a large, large table uh, partitioning become, became really important. So I could sort of partition the table and then I could have maybe tiered storage with, uh, recent data on very high speed storage and I could have older data on sort of maybe slower spinning media or something. And then I could have really, really old data, uh, pushed out into Azure storage. But, but that's a very different scenario to what we're now talking about with StretchDB. It is, uh, at least from an implementation perspective. So conceptually, the problem hasn't changed. You have massive amounts of data, and every time I talk to customers or partners, I always ask them what, who has the biggest table. And as of this week, the single largest unpartitioned table 
that one of our customers has is 54 billion rows, out of which 80-some percent is cold. And, of course, I would follow up with, what's your maintenance experience? You know, what's your DP re-index look like or update stats? And they just look at you and say, oh, we haven't done that in a year and a half. So We don't do that because it doesn't work. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't work. And then you ask them, why don't you partition? Like, you know, smart folks like Greg would do. And they look at that and say, well, I could, but that means after I get that rolled out, I can never take a vacation. I'm not even allowed to die because nobody else would be able to manage this after I'm gone. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, yeah. I must, so, I must admit, there's a there's a lot of work to automating petitions uh, to get that, that thing flowing very very nicely, and it's an interesting challenge when you start having things that are on premises and the other part not on premises. I, I did originally think that the the main argument for it would have been where we had SQL Server in an Azure VM, uh, and and you know we had the ability to put data files out. I mean that that makes perfect sense and allows you to get around the uh, the limitation on the number of disks per CPU uh, in in Azure as well. Um, but yeah, the idea of being able to sort of you really want to be able to automatically sort of push these things out uh, into into more cold storage. And uh, yeah, I think that's that's obviously the target for this and simplicity. Yep, that's actually one of the critical considerations we went through. It would have actually been easier if we just targeted a VM in Azure, right? It's, it's SQL Server. We don't have to worry too much. You know, the plumbing's already in place. We just got to do a bit of work to teach the QP to be a little smarter, which we have to do now anyway, and we're call it a day. But the challenge is then the customer still has to manage these big table problems, and they still have to deal with maintenance challenges and whatnot. And really, the only way we can make that work transparently for them is to put into a pass platform, and that's that's the decision point right there. Because otherwise, put it into a VM somewhere else, guess what? Your 54 billion row table is still going to be 54 billion rows, just in a different instance. Hmm. So this, So the aim here is to have sort of availability of cold data, but in a sort of a cost-effective way, because the is one of the, the key things, the, the cost of on-premises storage? Cost is a huge factor. So folks are who are challenged with dealing with partitions and whatnot would keep them in your enterprise storage. And even if you have tiered storage, you're really not saving a whole lot by swapping out a couple of trays of SSDs or SAS disks with SATA disks because you still pay for the frame, the footprint, and the maintenance and the licenses. So cost definitely is an important factor. Uh, but even harder to deal with is these very large tables, as we described earlier. You can't maintain them, and if you cannot maintain them, you can't get performance out of them. So that becomes a problem. And the other huge problem is with these very large tables with mostly cold data. And we've got customers. So the next in line from 54 was actually... 45 billion rows, but this is interesting because it's 99% cold out of 45 billion rows. But every time the database crashed or they had to go recover from backups, and fortunately it doesn't happen too often, but when they have to do that, imagine sitting around waiting for all that cold data to restore while before you can get access to your hot data. That completely blew their SLA out the window. So what do you do? That's one of my favorite reasons for having uh, petitioning in the first place is is I see organizations all the time who, who haven't really thought about piecemeal recovery. And and this it's a big deal. It's, it's almost uh, some people find it confrontational when I say it, but like I, I go into organizations and some of them take two or three days to do a backup. And, and I often say to them, I said, why do you do a backup? And, and, and they say, well, of course you've got to do a backup. And I say, but if you had to restore it, would you still be in business? And, and it, invariably the answer is no, you know, because it might be anywhere up to a week to restore. And I say, well, in that case, why are you doing it? Right? Um, yep. And it's not that I don't want them to do a backup. It's you, you need plan B. Uh, if, if plan A is, is something that you could not actually ever do, that, then that's not a plan. And, and so, yeah, you need, you need something else. And, and what I find invariably in those places, they've got a ton of data that they do not need to operate, but they do need, you know, longer term. And so, but there's a difference between I can't run my retail store right now and I can run a report on seven-year-old data, 
right? I mean, that, you know, I don't need to be able to run reports on old data to be able to trade right now. Correct. Yeah, and like I said, it, folks were able to partition and be able to manage that uh, with relative ease, then that absolutely is a great solution. And we encourage customers to do that. SQL Server supports partitions and mean grow fairly large partitions. I think it's up to 10,000 now. So this does work for a number of our customers, but the vast majority of them look at this and say, yeah, I've got enough to worry about. I, I can't afford for my junior DBA or the operator to come in and merge the wrong partitions in the next maintenance cycle, and my system's now out of whack. Yeah, it, it, it has to be completely automated when you do it. And yeah, that Correct. It up to 15,000 that yeah, happened a few years ago. But, and people look and go, oh, that's a lot of partitions. And, it, you know, yeah, that's true. But, but I also have clients who want to do daily petitions over you know, six and seven years or something, and in which case, yeah, now that's actually an appropriate number where it used to be like a 1,000. Um, but actually one of the challenges is a lot of the commands uh, are awkward to work with when you get to large numbers of petitions as well. They are, just a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're right, telcos especially, they partition daily just because the volume is just insane. Yeah. And also, many of the operations, the increasing number of operations you can do on a per petition basis, and and in that case, yeah, ha having them a reasonable size is, is sort of entirely reasonable. But 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 still, as we say, there's a lot of admin things in and around that, and you know, so for some people, that that's just not the problem. The problem is they just don't have enough storage, and so I think yeah, being able to stretch that out and and not be able to remove things is desirable. Um, another one, I suppose, is the the aim of not having to change anything much in the application. Yeah, that's one of the things that we work really hard on. We're not going to be 100%, but we're going to try and get pretty close. So the transparent aspect is definitely one of the things that customers care a lot about. So I think we're doing okay for now. Uh, we're going to get a lot better over time. But, yeah, not changing the app is a big deal. They just got to keep working. And DBAs will make sure that the right infrastructure is in place so that they can fetch data from Azure with reasonable latency. And so the aim is that basically the application still sees a table and it shouldn't matter too much apart from query response time where that data is, whether it's on-premises or off. That's the, the kind of aim. Correct. So if, if you're only operating against hot data, then you won't even know anything's happened. If you need to go touch cold data, then you would pay a higher latency. Uh, the interesting thing there is we, we kind of discovered this uh, in as we were testing with CTP customers. In some edge cases, it actually made their system run overall performance run faster after they've stretched, and that was an interesting discovery, uh, and this is because the local host was already really, really busy, and if they had to go run a query that does aggregate against cold data, and some of these cold data can be, as we talked, into billions of rows, it completely pegged the local host in I.O. and CPU, but with all of that stretched to Azure, now they're keeping the Azure side busy, but there's so much compute you can spin up there in a second, uh, they push the load out there and do all the aggregation and pull the data back. So it ended up being faster after they had stretched instead of slower. Yeah, this is actually a key distinction, I suppose, from what I was sort of getting at earlier, is that you could stretch the storage out before, but it doesn't actually stretch the compute out. Where Correct. If we have a database at the other end, you can split a query between local and remote, and the remote one can do some of the work. Right, Exactly. And so, yeah, I think that's interesting. And so I suppose it's uh, also, there, I suppose there's a few things we've got to come to around maintenance and things like that. But I suppose the, the number one thing was uh, robustness and security of the data um, when building something like this, because I, I suppose it, it, it does feel a little weird to someone maybe that my data is somewhere between here and there. <laughs> yeah, and we still have folks that, kind of can't wrap their heads around moving stuff into the cloud and expecting that to be safe and available. Mm -hmm. So we, we work hard uh, to make sure that we are secure by default. Uh, we actually prevent users from misconfiguring the instance and end up sending stuff over the wire in clear text. We actually ignore those settings, and we always force a secure setting. 
And of course, we make sure the Azure side is protected and you can always get the RPO that you need. It's always transactionally consistent and users can go do whatever they want locally, restore T logs to LSNs or point in times, and we will make sure that you get transactional consistency with the Azure side. Yeah, actually, I suppose in your case, you've got a sort of a double challenge there and then you've got the people who are maybe not comfy with it being in the cloud at all to start with. And then once you get past that, you then have the, you know, my data is going to be moving around uh, in, a, in a way that I don't control. Uh, true. So folks are kind of still a little leery of the cloud, but we find that to be changing fairly quickly. Uh, as of five years ago, people wouldn't even talk to you if you mentioned the words cloud. And, and three years ago, people were like, okay, we, we kind of grok this thing. We don't trust it, but tell me more. How do I do that? And now we've got uh, CIOs and CTOs and even DBA levels saying, yeah, I really want to figure out how to make this work. It's not widespread as in everybody doing it, but we're definitely seeing a lot of folks opening up just because – Look, if you're going to send your financial statements over email and you think that's okay, yeah. uh, I, you know. Yeah, yeah, I completely so. agree. It's a, it, it's one of the things I, I often say to people when I go into places, you know, like they're, when I ask them about things, they say, oh, you know, cloud, they, they start off with security of my data. And, and, and I just have to tell them, look, I, you know, I go into lots of organizations all the time. And when I look at what the Azure people do on their worst day, they do a better job than any company I walk into. So, like, what are we talking about? I mean, that, that's just ridiculous, you know. Um, and so, yeah, that 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 aspect of it, I I, I think hopefully we're we're getting past quite quickly. It's getting better for sure. Uh, it'll take time, but we're definitely seeing people turn around. And you know, I think another big one there too is uh, meeting compliance. Um, uh, Again, I look at things like uh, Azure data centers and so on, and, and they're so focused on compliance and so on. And even when I do work with banks and so on, I mean, they struggle to meet the same compliance requirements. Um, but they don't have large teams of people who've got nothing better to do than to make sure they meet them. <laughs> well, I'm guessing they have better things to do, but this is probably higher priority. Mm. But yeah, even over here, so we've got, we certainly have teams of folks who are responsible for compliance, but that doesn't really work right. You can't have, you can't be dependent on people to ensure compliance. So there's a boatload of automation in place to keep track of exactly what's going on. So everything that we do, if we ever have to touch code or one of the production systems and clusters, there's a whole series of, of, measures in place that first make sure you come from a secure source, like, you know, your workstations are secure, you need to go to jump boxes, multi-factor off, all of that good stuff. And then there's always some system that's monitoring what you're doing and automatically flags you and raises alerts if you're doing something that's either suspicious or you're not supposed to do. So we can't count on people to monitor and ensure compliance. We have automation in place to make sure this happens. That way, you know, People are available. You know, systems are far more reliable. Now, the I suppose the thing I'm sort of getting at is that I have a feeling down the track that the compliance requirements will keep increasing, and I, I have a feeling that these sort of data centers are eventually the only ones who will actually meet the requirements. Um, and so, I actually think it's converse. I think eventually people will be start to be forced to to go in that direction. But uh, anyway, that's a, maybe a challenging thought for them for the moment. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, and the other thing is I, I do like the level of monitoring and so on. I mean, like people looking for, uh, I don't know, DNS attacks and, and various denial of service attacks and various things. Like most organizations are going to don't have a lot of, again, a, a lot of coping with that sort of thing. That's true. So we have multiple monitoring capabilities and watchdogs is to look for different kinds of attacks. So DNS attacks, poisonings, are those are actually fairly well known and we know how to mitigate those. Uh, we have infrastructure to deal with DDoS and people trying to uh, brute force. So yeah, and these are all system monitors and 
the relevant teams get notified immediately if something's going on. So you, you have people that actually know how to get in, at the code level to fix things and to prevent things from happening if they do occur uh, or people are trying to break into stuff. And it's round the clock. You've got engineers on duty, round the clock on call. Yeah, actually, a good example. I've got uh, a, colleague, a fellow RD, uh, Tim Huckabee, and he sort of his company, Enology, built uh, the systems that were being used for uh, the U.S. presidential. Uh, oh yeah, I know Tim. Cool guy. Yeah, indeed. And uh, he rolled out the application that they were using for all the the voting and you know all this sort of stuff, or the the counting and so on. And uh, he was just talking about the level of attacks that were occurring on that application. You know, while those things were in the middle of being televised, and he he had nothing but glowing praise for the, the teams uh, who helped him, uh, you know, basically deal with those issues. Yeah, we're 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 definitely still learning, but I think we're we're probably more heavily invested in this area than most IT departments, and it's hard, right? I mean, to get the experts in place and being having the will to actually see these things through. I mean, we would stop code from checking in. I don't care how important a feature is, including stretch. I personally would block check-ins if we did not believe it met the security bar. Yeah. So anyway, so that's the, the core thing. And then the second thing is if you're going to be moving data sort of automatically from on-premises to and from the cloud, again, there's the security of how, how does that all so it's always initiated from SQL Server. So the Azure database, Stretch database in Azure, can never call back. So we always call from on-prem. Uh, it's always via secure channels, TLS 1.2 by default, and that's uh, Azure requires it anyway. And we always do certificate validation. So at least it's a pretty good measure against man and middle attacks. So once we ensure we have a secure connection, then the data movement is largely transparent. We just grab batches of rows and we push it up to Azure. And if we lose that connection or we lose the secure channel, then we just stop moving data. And the other thing also is if you took a backup of a stretch database and you try to restore it and then present yourself as a valid uh, source, we actually require you to rerun the authorization using a stored procedure to the Azure database to make sure that you are who you say you are. So if somebody stole a backup of your database, they can't go in there and they effectively change the data on you and go away and you come back on and thinking, ah, life is good, but something bad has already happened. So there are multiple layers of security in place to ensure that, you know, we, we try to be as secure as we can. And the other aspect, I suppose, of that is consistency. And so making sure I don't end up with two copies of a row or, or missing rows or things like that. Right. So that's actually fairly straightforward. When, when we grab the rows locally, we pop them into a staging table and uh, we push that asynchronously into Azure. And every batch that goes across has a corresponding batch ID, and we use that to track to make sure that uh, we don't we don't we haven't done the same job multiple times. It only gets there once and only once, and we make sure it's transactionally consistent by tracking those batch IDs. It also helps us during recovery so that we can very quickly jump to the right uh, coordinated batch IDs between local and remote without having to go replay or restore a bunch of data to get you to point-in-time consistency. So it, it's a fairly simple mechanism, but a lot of times simple is good. Yeah, yeah, and, well, it ends up robust, yeah, that's important. Now, also in terms of the processing at the back end, so maybe we talk about the what's at the back end. So this is this is not... Uh, another copy of SQL Server as a uh, like a VM or something like that. So we're talking about Azure SQL Database at the back end or SQL DB. Um, I, but they started using the terminology stretch edition, and so uh, right. So started talking about database stretch units DSUs instead of Correct. database throughput units uh, DTUs. So what's the story? Right. There? So. We, we stood up a new service dedicated for, to StretchDB. So it's, if, so if you think about all of our SQL Server, uh, IP, there's the core SQL Server code base and that ships 
mostly or traditionally in the box that we all know and have used for decades, SQL Server. And then not too long ago, we started taking that and shipping that as SQL DB in Azure. Uh, and then some time ago, a variation of that became SQL DW. Now you're looking at the third service called SQL Stretch Database. So it's still based on the same IP, but there are optimizations in place on how we configure the service and how we operate that to target this specific type of workload. So we originally stretched to SQL DB while we were building the service, but now that the service is running, this is the only target we're going to go after. And the, the really key distinction points, there are a couple. There is uh, stretch databases in Azure have separate storage and compute metering, and you can store 100 terabytes of data in there and use the minimum 100 DSUs. There's no tight coupling, unlike SQL DB. And the other key thing also is uh, right now we support, or we will support by GA, one petabyte of storage, which you can't do in SQL DB. Yeah, I know in the preview it used to say it was limited to 60 terabytes, but, I mean, e even then, you know, I mean, you're, we're talking about crazy amounts of size. So. Yeah, and every time we say that we can do the, you know, however big it is, some customer will, will tell us, well, that's nice, but we've got some bigger. And just yeah. a week and a half ago, a customer told us that uh, they have five petabytes of cold data. So we're sitting there figuring out how we can support that now. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. The, um... Yeah, I don't know how they accumulated five petabytes of cold data, but, you know, they came to us. Oh, no, so, I okay. I can well imagine. <laughs> the, uh, but in terms of uh, the stretching, too, and so it's important to understand, so this is only to Azure SQL database. Uh, it's There's no option to currently stretch to, like, you know, another SQL server on my premises, on-premises, uh, or anything like that. So it, it's specifically to Azure SQL database. Correct. We do get the occasional request from customers saying that, hey, why, why can't I stretch to SQL Server? Uh, there's nothing technically preventing us. We just haven't done it. Uh, but we got to remember, if you stretch to another SQL Server instance, uh, you still have to figure out how to maintain that and make sure you have the right storage uh, tiers in place so you get some savings out of it. And you still have to maintain those very large tables in that stretched uh, that SQL Server database instead of letting us worry about it in the back end. So there is some merit to stretching to a SQL Server for folks who really need data to be on-prem, but then the value prop drops quite a bit because the whole challenge of dealing with massive amounts of uh, data in a table then becomes still your responsibility, and you still got to figure out Correct, correct. Now, one of the things I also like about, that I do like positively here too as well, is uh, because it is uh, like an Azure SQL DB at the back end, we also get the ability to scale the performance of that up or down. And so I'm presuming this is still hourly billing uh, for the database at the back end and then the hourly billing based upon, I suppose, the number of DSUs in, the, in this case. Uh, and so what that would mean, I suppose, is that I could run most of the month with a, a low-performance one at the back end, and if I want to run some reports on older data intensively at the end of the month or something, I could step the performance up? Yep, that's that's the intent. You can bump it up and down as and when you need to. So one of the examples that we get a lot uh, from customers is, you know, on a regular basis, it's mostly just a few queries because users want to pull some reports, you know, like two or three times a day at most. The rest of the time it's just trickling data. And then occasionally you have auditors come in or investigators come in and say, ah, we want to go dig back into X number of years of history. And depending on whether you love or don't love these auditors, you may want to bump up the, the DSUs so they can finish their jobs quickly and get out of the office. So, but yeah. Actually, even uh, SQL in VM I've found very useful for that in the past. So, uh, for example, I had a client who had a large amount of data on-premises and they were thinking they wanted to delete it, but they were just not completely comfortable with deleting it. And it actually worked very well that we just pushed it up into an Azure SQL VM uh, and then just shut the VM down so they were just paying for storage. 
Um, but at any point in time, if they ever needed to access it, they could just spin it up again, and you know, eight or ten minutes later, they could access it. But it just gave them this sort of sense of comfort that it was out there. Oh yeah, there there, there are certainly other solutions, and if it's okay to be offline, absolutely. And you know, VMs, we do have customers doing that also. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And so the so we talked about the size of it. Now, if if you also stretch it out there, and then you decide you don't want to do that, there's also options for bringing it back, right? Correct. You can always unmigrate and bring all your data back, and decide that no, nah, I want to take my ball and go home. Don't want to play with you anymore. So it's a fairly straightforward operation. Uh, it's, all it does is. Uh, we actually just do the reverse. So we grab chunks of data from Azure and we push it back down in the local staging table and then we push that back into the original table. Now, of course, you got to make sure you have enough space locally. Otherwise, the operation will just halt and wait for you until you increase the space uh, for whatever drive that you're holding the file. Mm. Now, in terms of monitoring what's going on with moving data to and from, we've got monitoring dashboards. We do. So from Management Studio, you can right-click on the database and look for the stretch tab, and within that, there's a little a link called Monitor, and if you bring that up, it basically gives you an overview of the state of your database that's been stretched, where it's targeted, how much space is consumed locally versus remote, uh, what's what's the current data movement state, how many rows do you have local that's pending move, versus how many that will remain here. So all of that good stuff's in there. Bear in mind, it is a V1, so we, we probably don't have all of the uh, things that people care about in place. We just have what we've gotten feedback from customers so far. And SSMS will rev pretty much every month anyway. So as we get better feedback and telemetry from customers, we can improve that monitoring capability. And if you don't like uh, to look at our dashboard or monitor, all of this information is available via DMVs and catalog views, so you can go probe directly using T-SQL. Yeah, so you, you can work out where you're at with that. Yeah, that's great. And so I suppose the, one of the biggest challenges at the moment with it, that almost felt a bit, uh, well, version one at the moment, I, I presume are the, the current blocking issues uh, in terms of uh, when I looked at a lot of the marketing, they made it sound like I could just pick tables up and, and uh, stretch them out. But when I started trying that, I must admit I, I ran into a, a lot of the current blocking issues. And so what, what are the, the, the main ones that are, people are likely to stumble with at the moment, and, and are they likely to stay uh, longer term? Yeah, our, our marketing folks tend to be a little... Over, more optimistic, I guess. Mm -hmm. But so the key things really are some of the data types, right? So yep. any of the XML base types are not supported for V1. We're trying to figure out how to make that work moving forward, mostly for efficiency's sake. But if you have XML types or ge uh, geospatial data types, those yeah, are not supported. CLR types, yeah. So and correct. Is that really a limitation because the to process those, you, you need the assemblies at the other end as well? In part, yes, uh, but there are also efficiencies in the actual types itself. So if we have to, have to push the assemblies, that's okay, but then how do we make sure thing, things are updated and refreshed? So there's the operational efficiencies that we need to take into consideration. So these are not unsolvable problems. It's just a matter of prioritizations, and we figured uh, – based on feedback, we don't have that many customers that are saying we need this for stretch, yeah. and so we figure well, let's go solve some of the other harder problems first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I was imagining just the idea that you split some of the processing local and some of it remote, then anything that sort of program programmatic objects, I mean, you'd need the ability to, to process them at the other end as well. So, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. Correct. Um, one, one that did surprise me, uh, that bit me, were uh, computed columns. Um, and I, one, of the, one of the things I, I never quite get with a lot of these features that have limitations around computed columns, there never seems to be a distinction between persisted computed columns uh, and ones that are calculated on the fly. And I, I can understand the potentially the, the limitation around computed columns, 
but I don't get why there'd be a limit for persistent computer columns. I mean, you think at that point it's frustrating. Yeah, unfortunately, this is really just a factor of which are the higher highest demands from customers and how much time and engineering resources we have. So, specific to computed columns, uh, if the computed columns were all, they can all be resolved, and persistent or not, they can all be resolved within the same table object, then that's fairly straightforward. If they have some external dependencies, including other tables or some function that sits outside a database, then that becomes a little trickier, right? So, uh, unfortunately... Persisted one, you've already calculated and stored the value, so I was sort of puzzled that you can't then just stretch that out. Uh, well... Yes, but then we also look into after we, we push that over, we allow administrative updates to the remote side, and we need to figure out what's the right action that we're going to permit or not. So, again, it's it's not something that's rocket science to solve, but we looked at that, and that's among the list of things that we had to go do. And, unfortunately, for computed columns, there are a bunch of other customer requests that trumped it, and we looked at it and we figured, you know, we'll get to this after yeah, we get some of the key stuff first. My, yeah, uh, I had the same thing with filtered indexes. Um, I, I, I know, I know. And it's so frustrating where, where uh, I have per, you know perfect use cases for persisted computed columns being able to build a, a filtered index on them. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, again, you can't do that. And, and actually what was, what was nastier there is I, I talked to the dev and I said, why can't you do that? And he went, oh. And uh, I think he had, they hadn't even talked about persisted ones, so it was like, oh. <laughs> so if, if you've talked about it and there's a reason, that's great. <laughs> like, uh, I get it. But often they just seem to come under the computed column heading without anything else. Yeah, so. yeah we actually walked through a lot of these things, and we've, we've scoped out actually computed columns specifically. We've spec'd out persisted and things that are scoped within the table, and that's something we already have a design for to figure out how to do. It's just to figure out what's the next vehicle that we can go get this executed on. So it's on our list for the next wave of planning. A bigger one were constraints. And so uh, check constraints, uh, again, I, I kind of get that in terms of uh, like computed columns, you know, in, in around the same sort of logic. But default constraints puzzled me. Um, and again, is that the fact that they could involve functions or uh, system functions or something? Or? For, for the most parts, yes. So the, the the way we think about that is in the same way. If it involves any kind of operation that's not scoped to within the table, then uh, we, we kind of put that in the bucket and say we'll, we'll try and get to this after we go after some of the core stuff. And, of course, we also try and get a bunch of user feedback, and we did get a few, uh, including yours, about being able to support this computer columns and uh, default values and whatnot. It's just... Uh, some of the other features and the customer requests kind of trumped this in priority, but this, these are things that we do want to go after. Yeah, I think the, um, I, I suppose the concern for me is that the the first time I ran the wizard, I sort of like right-click and go, you know, what can I stretch? And it came back and said nothing. And I went, oh. <laughs> and so the, the problem is I went through and had a look at like every single table I had you know, one of these things or something somewhere in every table. And so it, it, it sort of struck me, again, as I said, where the marketing was like, yeah, just pick these tables up and move them. And then I, the reality was I ran the wizard and it told me none of them could move. Uh, I, I I ended up feeling like it it, it sort of had a place, but I, but I have a feeling at the moment I, I'd have to design tables that would be part of my design to think that I'm going to, use stretch rather than necessarily just pick up and, and take existing tables and stretch them. The, so that's not the intent, and that shouldn't be the experience. So part of the challenge that you, you encountered is uh, the, the wizard is has not caught up with the, the rest of the engine code, and there are different reasons which I won't go into, but some of the things that the wizard identify as blockers have actually been removed because we have a list of blockers and we just incrementally knock them out and just uh, 
get rid of them and they're now enabled. And sometimes the, the, the wizard hasn't caught up and it incorrectly identifies things that we've already removed as blockers. So, and we'll get that fixed before GA for sure. Also worth noting at the moment for people trying this that there are two wizards as well. And so there's the, the one in management studio and there's the one in the upgrade advisor, which I thought was a curious place for it. Um, but what I found is that the one in the upgrade advisor when I ran that wizard, it came back with lots of things that were stretchable, where the one in Management Studio said nothing was. So, and that was on the same databases. So, it feels that yeah. So, as you say, like in terms of the tooling, uh, I, I think people would actually get a better outcome at the moment from the Upgrade Advisor than the one in Management Studio. Yep, that's kind of our one of our internal slips there, where the same rule sets were not correctly implemented on, on both sides. So that's where you see the inconsistencies. And we have that fixed now, and you'll you'll see that reflected in the next iterations. Yeah, great. Yeah. Because, yeah, I know a number of people were sort of trying it at the, at the earlier version. And, and as I said, you got a better response out of that other tool at the moment. Now, the other things, uh, I suppose, while we're on limitations, um, there's things around unique constraints and primary key constraints. And... And I suppose the the message is that uniqueness isn't enforced on those, which is um, uh, would sound a bit surprising. But I'm I'm guessing that's just a performance issue, is it? Uh, that uh, it would just simply take too long to do. Uh, yes and no. So it, part of it is performance. We actually have a design that we're working through right now that will allow us to do that. But the bigger thing really is the whole notion of unique constraints comes from the peak, the primary key and foreign key relationships where if you have your typical stretch scenario would be to stretch the details table or the one that has the history or whichever the one that ends up having lots and lots of cold data. So in your typical parent-child relationship, that would be the child table, not the parent table. Yeah. So yeah, actually, in this case, reason, uh, even though there's a limitation on incoming foreign key constraints, uh, that didn't right. in the slightest because it's usually outgoing rather than incoming on these sorts of tables, if if at all. And so, correct. Don't tend to ever have incoming ones on that. Um, I, I suppose the uh, the one which is the elephant in the room still a bit at the moment is the. That, that when you have a stretch-enabled table, you can't actually do updates or deletes on that table at the moment. And at first I thought, oh, wow, I, like that, that almost meant that I just couldn't use it at all. However, um, with temporal tables appearing in SQL Server 2016, it then struck me that this is, this is like the perfect use case for the history table. Oh yeah, we, we, we actually work closely with them as we're working through the early stages of design and development. So they are one of our, our key use cases where if you have temporal enabled and you expect to keep large amounts of history, then it would probably be a really good idea to stretch that because temporal is always insert only and you would just keep growing that if you want to keep time travel indefinitely. So it's a great use case for customers who want to keep lots and lots of that, but don't want to have to deal with the traditional big table problems. So absolutely, it's a great scenario. But one point to, to note there is you actually can update cold data in the stretch database. We just don't allow you to do that uh, as a regular DML. If you included a query hint, and it's just simply with remote data archive override, and you can just say remote only, if you have the right permissions, you can actually update the cold data, right? Because there are real business requirements for that. Yeah, that I was. It was one of the the stumbling blocks where I was just looking and going, how how can I actually use this? And yeah, but if you have that ability to do that, even even in just the occasional basis or whatever, uh, that that makes a world of difference. Oh yeah, that's actually a, a hard requirement by customers because there there are two key scenarios. One is you you get a lawyer from some federal agency or for some lawyer that says you can no longer keep this data about customers or from this particular customer and whatnot, and you got to wipe everything, including history and backups and whatnot. So we give them the ability to do that, and you, if you wipe it, it's gone. 
And then the other one, obviously, is a little more operational, where let's say you got rezoned and all of these customers are now in a different zip code or their phone area codes have changed, and you want to make sure that, you know, even in your history, it's correctly reflected so people don't restore an older version and get the wrong data. So you can make those changes also. Yeah. Although most of the time with the temporal tables, a lot of those things, part of the reason for using them is to capture the the, the changes over time. So, so yeah, so the, that one doesn't actually slow me down that much uh, most most of the time. Oh, yeah. If you have temporal, then th- th- this doesn't even matter. Yeah, the whole rewriting history is, a, is an interesting concept. <laughs> That's right. Well, lawyers will want you to do that sometimes. They're saying you cannot keep this anymore. Yes, no, indeed. Oh, that's good. And so now in terms of uh, pricing, is the, is the pricing similar to uh, – I haven't looked at the pricing at the moment, but is it similar to the Azure SQL DB pricing? Or is, uh, and is it premium tier or – Actually, I'm pretty sure when I set one up the other day, it also created uh, two databases, not one. But um, I'm not sure about that, whether it was in like a replica type thing, but uh, maybe that was an option I chose. Uh, No. So what happens is, so I don't remember the actual pricing dollar, but there is no premium tier. It's only one SKU, and pricing is based on what you actually consume. So if you consume 100 DSUs for six days or a month or whatever, however many hours, uh, you get billed for what that consumption is. And there's no uh, higher tier that has a different price or a lower tier. So it's just a flat-out thing. And the database is only one database. It's a one-to-one mapping between the local SQL server and the Azure Stretch SQL. Uh, the only thing that to be aware of is if you unstretched your local database and you uh, basically removed all of the stretch components on your local SQL server or even deleted the local SQL server, we don't automatically delete the stretch database in Azure. So you'd have to go out there and delete it yourself, mostly because... There's no way for us to determine whether the action that you took to delete the database or unstretch it is intentional that you want to wipe out the remote also. Mm. If you have removed stretch from local and you want to delete the local database then and you really don't care about the Azure stuff anymore, then you, you can go to the Azure portal to delete the database or you can connect to it from SSMS, connect to the server, and then delete the stretch database in Azure. So if I have a local database and I have it stretched out and then I want to move the local one, can I delete the local database, create another database on another server, and then reconnect the stretch? Uh, you you could, but the, the right way would be to restore your – to do a, take a backup and restore the database and push it out there just because – if, if you have moved a bunch of data to Azure already yep. and you create a new database which essentially has no data and then you try to reauthorize against the remote which has a bunch of data, when we try to reconcile, we would always trust the local to be the version of truth, in which case then we'll see, ah, you've got no batches, no rows here. So there conceivably should be nothing in there, or we're going to look at that. We can't reconcile this, so something is out of whack. Who is the right version? And typically the local one owns control, in which case we will drop all of this stuff on the remote side. Yeah. Okay. Now, to get this started to be set up, so we, we need to uh, enable at different levels to get that going. So the... The, the first level is we've got to enable it at the database level? Uh, actually, it's so it's the typical security hierarchy, right? So you need to enable the instance for stretch, so that's an SP configure option. And then you need to enable at the database level, so you need to have at least a DBO level command. And then you would enable each individual table for stretching. So if you think along the hierarchy, it's the DBA, this is admin equivalent, and then the DBO, you're the database owner. And then below that, you could be the table owner can go ahead and do stuff. And this allows for organizations that have clear role separation. And if some uh, security incident were to occur, you can just turn it off at the 
instance level and it would halt all activity. It doesn't break anything, doesn't change anything, but it will halt everything until you figure out that, okay, all is clear, you get the green light and flip them back on and it's up and operational again. So we we basically provide you the same security hierarchy as existing SQL Server uh, security models. So DBAs are familiar with it and know how to operate against it. And so at the table level, we're altering the table, setting remote data archive, and then you set a migration state, uh, outbound or inbound. Correct. Uh, you can outbound, inbound, or paused. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. yes. So, Indeed, you can pause yep. as well. Yep. Yeah. And that shows so one important... The dashboard. Yeah. Correct. So there's an important detail there. So, uh, of course, when you first set up and you want to stretch, it will be outbound going into Azure, and then you can pause it and you can resume to outbound again. Uh, if you switch it to inbound, you can also pause it and resume inbound. You cannot switch directions until the inbound has completed. So you can't say, well, I'll bring it back for a little while and then push it back out again. That's not allowed. Now, the other thing that I was creating were predicates to determine which rows were at which end. Uh, and so that was a table-valued function, uh, so, sort of a bit like the ones that we build for row-level security, uh, same, same sort of thing. Um, what I did find, all the examples, interestingly, uh, said create function, blah, 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 and they said return select one as is eligible or something, and then where, and then they had the, uh, the predicate there. The, the first times I was trying that, um, I, when I wanted it to not be eligible, I was going select zero, and I was doing the same with row-level security. And it actually quite threw me in that um, it seems to be that the way all of these things work is that if a row is returned, uh, whether it's a positive or negative value sort of thing, then uh, or zero or not, then that's determined as uh, it's uh, eligible. And it seems right. So, the, yeah. the, <laughs> so, so it isn't a case of the value that you return. It's the returning or not returning of a row is the thing that determines whether it satisfies the predicate. Yeah, I, I guess we could write better uh, samples, and maybe some of the semantics could be better. But uh, the key thing is the predicate is intended to identify rows, and either you do or do not have the rows. So, but I guess we could make that a little tighter. Mm. Uh, the other thing that I think surprised me at first is I was imagining that the the function would be something I could just sort of like uh, have have uh, maybe a sliding window or something like that built in. <laughs> uh, but but again, that was another one that sort of surprised me is that because it's sort of deterministic function, uh, then literally what you need to do is kind of create a a thing that says you know stretch up beyond this particular time, uh, and then you need later to create another function for another time and then swap the functions, I suppose. So that's correct for RTM release. And the sliding window thing, we, we know we wanted to do it. Again, it's, it's running up again with time constraint. Uh, but the deterministic requirement is important, and we need to, we need to really know what rows do and do not fit. And Non-deterministic functions are dangerous because we can never tell what, what exactly is the scope that is stretchable or not. So that one probably will not change for quite a while, but we will find edges of that to enable, like being able to have sliding window functions. That technically is non-deterministic, but we can lock it down enough that this becomes useful. So, yeah, so we couldn't make that sliding window GA. That says, yeah, is row older than 20th this 2016-0101 sort of thing, and then you'd have right. a different function for yeah, a different date or something. But but the thing is, it, it, it's not unmanageable you know, in, in any way. It's just, uh, again, I think when I first started doing it, I was imagining I could write a function that goes where <laughs> it's older than three months or something like that. And yeah, yeah that yep. doesn't quite work. You, you're, you're imagining exactly the right things. Just keep thinking along those lines. We figured by the time uh, customers have deployed this long enough that it's time to roll the functions over, we would have that fixed or, or have the feature enhanced that we can support that. So, and One other question, maybe uh, a little odd, but uh, are the, the alter tables and things, uh, the DML, uh, DDL statements, are they actually transactional or not? Or 
you know, a lot of some things are in DDL and some aren't. But I just started wondering when you start having this on-premises, off-premises stuff. What, what is? I presume it isn't transactional, but but is is it at all? So we we ensure that you are transactionally consistent, but they, they are they're not held as a single transaction to ensure that both the Azure and, and the remote side are in sync, right? So, like, if you alter the schema to add indexes and whatnot, we push that across and we make sure it happens correctly and we make sure you, uh, the local and remote do get onto the same schema, but we can't hold one open transaction to do all of those things, just yeah, the nature of... Yeah, it could take so long, but, uh, yeah, that's... Uh... Right, I and mean, we don't want you to sit there waiting for it. So, yeah, so we work around that to make sure that we, we will get that command across executed once and only once and correctly, but we don't hold transactions open for it to work. So anything that is supported, we ensure that it does work correctly. And the other thing is, I suppose, eventually you will maybe want to get rid of some of the old, old data, um, and so we don't currently have any, like, predicate that says this is how how old you should keep the data totally. Yes. Uh, um, so does that mean that sort of uh, query hint you were talking about before is the way you then go and delete really old data? Or Correct. So in the short term, uh, if you wanted to basically wipe stuff you don't care about, or in some cases you're not allowed to keep data beyond a certain period, mm. uh, depending on where you're at, then the query hint with the Delete with the query hint will allow you to go delete the cold data and it'll wipe it out from Azure. Uh, one of the feature lists that we have in the backlog is to be able to set policies so that after you stretch it after X amount of time, we can go do the cleanup for you also automatically. So, yeah, there's a bunch of fun things we can do. Is really, uh, but, e but even not just uh, a straight sliding, but it could be sort of a one that hops, you know. I'd, I'd love to be able to go, look, anything... Uh, you know, I'd love to keep this for seven years, but it's not like seven years up to today. It's seven years up to the end of some financial year. And right. so be able to somehow express that and then to also be able to express, you know, the, the current financial year's worth of data I'd like to keep on premises. Yep. So, so just a, a sliding date of from here back a year, I, I'm not sure that's what's needed. It's more a case of, you know, uh, whatever year I'm in, maybe this year plus the previous year or or just this financial year or something like that, yeah. Yeah, that's, so that, that's really the goal for the sliding window, right? It, it shouldn't be a fixed number. It should be saying, okay, I, I want to keep, I don't know, 18 months is hot. Everything older than 18 months is cold, something like that. And then anything older than, let's say, 96 months is no man's land. We need to get rid of that. So we, we want to support the ability to define these policies and we plumb that into the engine so that we can track that and do the necessary cleanup for you automatically. So it's it's on the list of features to, uh, for us to figure out when we can go work on some of these cool things. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking that often when we're doing table petitioning, yeah, it's not like a even though we might do petitions every month or whatever, the, the getting rid of it is usually based on a year or something like that rather than, uh, rather than on the month by month. Yep. Yep, yeah. So we get it. It's, it's that we've really not talked about with Stretch or that getting close to all the things or any other messages uh, like people to, to take away from Stretch? Uh, well, the first thing is I'd love for people to try it and see if they can come with a data set bigger than what we can support. And I know I probably will live to regret these words, but, hey, you know, <laughs> bring the large data. I know we've got one customer that says they have five terabytes. I haven't physically seen it yet, but yep. they claim. So we'd love the feedback, test it, whatever you like or don't like. Well, you know, let us know. We'll figure out how to fix it. And the key thing is if you do have a very large data set you want to move out there, our field marketing and business folks have incentives in place to help you out. And personally, from the engineering team side, we want to work with you. If you have, like, multi-terabytes of cold data, let us know. We want to work with you directly to help you be successful. So, but other than that... If someone had multi-terabytes of cold data, the other question is, is there any method by which they can upload them or send them or something 
you know, rather than putting it into the local table and having it trickle up. So we are working on that already. So if you do have that situation and trickle is not the desired option, then it'd be a great collaboration that we can have to see, you know, what what's ideal there. Mm. So like I know yeah. we recently had the copy up of it was about 800 gigabytes or something into a storage account, and I found that like the AZ or AZ copy uh, did a, a marvelous job of doing that within a couple of hours. Um, but I'm just imagining that if even that data was trickling up row by row, that would be a, a serious length of time. I would think it would take. <laughs> yeah. It will be, but it's by design because we want to make sure we don't impact the production workload. But right now we're we're going roughly around three terabytes a month if you add a constant trickle. So it's not terrible, but I, I can see that people with tens of terabytes would probably say, no, I want to get out of this local enterprise storage things a lot faster than that. Yeah, exactly. And we have design options in place. So if folks are interested in that and they have these massive volumes, talk to us. We'd love to work with you. Yeah, that's good. And so, listen, Joe, that's great. And so, look, is is there anything you have, I suppose, uh, launch-related things still coming up, but is there anywhere people will see you or hear things happening? Or uh, Yeah, so we're wrapping up the last bits of the service to get ready to show. So I'm actually now able to start looking at events and whatnot. So we just did a SQL Saturday in Silicon Valley, lots of folks there. Uh, we've been invited to go speak at the uh, global uh, the SQL Geeks conference in India. That's an amazing one, completely. Yeah, uh, Amit and, and the, the guys in India. Yeah, that, uh, that's great. Right, right. So it's really cool community stuff. So if you have something going on locally and you would uh, like us to be there, drop me a mail. I'd be happy to figure out how we can support these local events, especially if it's done by the community. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's that's totally awesome. Yeah, yeah, I must admit, one of the calls I was on with the product team the other day, they were they were telling me I think the phrase they used is uh, now unless something's on fire, um, it's not changing. So I, th- I think we're getting close. <laughs> uh, let's hope there are no fires. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, but but certainly anyway, I, I think yeah, obviously we're getting closer and closer to the release of the product, and and yeah, I think lots of things to be excited about. I. I uh, I note a number of people seem to have skipped 2014, but I have a feeling 2016 feels like one of these sort of versions that people will jump to. I I hope so. And if people have good reasons not to, let us know. We want to fix it. Mm, Awesome. So anyway, thanks so much for your time today, Joe. It's awesome. Thanks for having me, Craig. Always good talking to you. (laughs) 